Welcome to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Thank you for joining us for this in-depth study of God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources or to read her blog, visit her website at intheword.com. And now, Michelle. Father God, thank you so much for giving us this opportunity to come to your word today and hear your voice. Lord, I pray that I'd not get in the way of what you plan to do, but that you would speak and let it all be to the glory of Christ's name. It is in Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. In our last lesson, we saw Jesus arrested and taken for the first of his two trials, both of which had three stages to them. His Jewish trial, which was first, meant that he was taken to Annas, the actual high priest, before then secondly being taken to Caiaphas, whom the Romans had appointed as high priest at the time. Jesus' trial was illegal on many counts. For a start, it should never have been held at night, nor should it have been in a private residence. Matthew speaks of Caiaphas's uh, interview with Jesus, and he tells us in Matthew 26, verse 63 to 66, that Jesus kept silent until he was put under oath which in a sense forced him to speak. But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said so, Jesus replied, but I say to all of you, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. So you see, it's actually when Jesus makes a reference to Daniel's vision of him in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 to 14, that Caiaphas declares that he should be charged with blasphemy. Let me read you that passage from Daniel. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Jesus had very openly claimed to be the Son of Man, the Messiah, whom all peoples would serve and whose kingdom was an everlasting one. Though we may not know this, the Jews understood that it was only God himself who was ever said to come with the clouds of heaven. So no wonder they thought this was blasphemous. Luke 22 and 23 tells us the Sanhedrin was convened at dawn then for the third part of Christ's Jewish trial. But according to that same passage, by the time they took Jesus to Pilate, the charge had been changed from blasphemy to something that might be of greater interest to the Romans. In Luke 23 verse 2, we're told that Jesus is brought before Pilate and that they accused him of subversion, which is another name for rebellion or treason. 
And the religious leaders specifically add to the charge, saying that Christ was not only opposed to the payment of Roman taxes, but that he was also claiming to be king. In this lesson, we're going to look at Christ's Roman trial, which also had three phases, though John does not specifically cover each of them. In John 18, verse 28 to 38, we're told that Jesus was first taken to Pilate. According to Luke 23, verses 6 through 12, once Pilate found out that Jesus was from Galilee, he tried to pass him off to Herod. That was unsuccessful, though, because Herod ends up returning Jesus to Pilate for sentencing. And the account of that third part of his Roman trial is found in John chapter 18, verse 39 through chapter 19, verse 16. So now, as we pick up in the text of John 18, verse 28, it's early morning around 6 a.m. When, when the Roman officials began their workday. It says, Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanliness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, What charges are you bringing against this man? Do you see how the Jews were so interested in their ceremonial legalism that they did not want to enter the governor's house in Jerusalem, simply because to enter a Gentile dwelling would have made them ceremonially unclean, and then they would not have been able to continue to celebrate the eight days of Passover as was celebrated by the Jews. In reality, they were already unclean, though, because of what they'd done to Jesus, because their own laws had already been broken. The Roman governor came out to them, though, and I find that very interesting. I mean, think about it. The Jews were a conquered people, and Pilate was the highest official of the occupying force. Why did he come out to them and not just tell them to go away? Well, I think the obvious answer may well be because God was in control, but perhaps we need to also find out a little bit more about Pilate and why he might have done the things that he did. His name was Pontius Pilatus, the fifth Roman proconsul or governor of Judea, an office that he held from AD 26 to AD 36. Most of our information concerning Pilate comes from a historian of the first century by the name of Philo. The Roman emperor, Tiberius, appointed Pilate, and Philo describes the governor as being a person with, and I quote, an inflexible, stubborn, and cruel character. Pilate was not a man who was kind, but he wasn't a weak man either. He had full control over the occupying army. He had the power of life and death. Everything that the Jewish leadership wanted to do had to be approved by him. Pilate was the one to appoint the high priest. He also controlled the temple and all of its funds, and he even kept the high priest's robes, only allowing them to be worn on special occasions when 
The governor and his troops were all in Jerusalem patrolling the city. Pilate had total control. He was a man of authority, so then why would he go out to the crowd? Well, in the past, he'd made several mistakes, which had made him look rather incompetent to the Roman emperor. For example, when Pilate came into Jerusalem for the very first time, for some reason he made the error of bringing Roman military flags into the city with him when he arrived. Even worse than that, he made the mistake of entering the city at night while the Jews slept. In the morning, when the Jews awoke to see the flags for the first time, they became furious because each flag had the image of Caesar upon it, which was really seen to be an idol by the Jewish people. Well, immediately the religious leaders demanded that Pilate remove them. Pilate realized that he was in trouble because what would Caesar think of Pilate if he gave in? and removed the Roman emperor's image from, from the city. The governor chose instead to threaten the Jews. At one point, he had his soldiers surround their leaders, and he told them that if they did not give in and go home, he would have to kill all of them. What Pilate didn't count on, though, was their response. When they heard his challenge, the Jews laid down and all of them bared their throats so that they might be more easily slit saying that they gladly welcomed death rather than breaking their religious laws. Defeated, Pilate backed off, and after six days he took the standards with their images of Caesar back to Caesarea, which was the town where the governor had his residence. His error was a real problem for his career. Over the years, there were many times that Pilate offended the Jewish leaders. He knew that he had to keep control at all costs. He was trying to protect his career. And when he heard that a crowd of Jewish leaders were at his door in Jerusalem demanding to see him, I imagine that Pilate quickly went out to them, filled with a sense of foreboding. They pushed Jesus forward. And Pilate asked them, what charges are you bringing against this man? Verse 30. If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. You notice how they're vague about the charges against Christ at this point. Pilate does not want to be involved, and so he suggests that they resolve the matter themselves. But in verse 31, they say that they did not have the authority to put anyone to death, which was true, because the Romans had taken that authority away from them. Otherwise, as you can imagine... The Sanhedrin would have killed any Jew who collaborated with the Romans long ago. I suppose the religious leaders could have taken matters into their own hands, but if they had killed Jesus of their own accord, it would have been by stoning. God's will and his word prophesied that the Messiah would die a death of crucifixion. Verse 33, Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? 
Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? The first question Pilate asks Jesus is recorded in all of the Gospels. Are you king of the Jews? Obviously, he's anxious to find out what Jesus' claims are. You see, a Jew showing up at Passover claiming to be king could incite the people to riot. Jesus asks Pilate if he is interested in the answer for this himself or if he's merely reiterating the charges brought against Christ by the religious leaders. But do you see Pilate's question makes it very clear to us that the Jewish leadership had immediately gone with the charge of sedition. They knew that a claim to be king might interest Pilate enough to cause him to put Jesus Jesus to death. In verse 36, Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. Notice that Jesus does not say that he is not a king. Also, he does not say that he will never rule on earth. He merely tells Pilate that his kingdom is first and foremost a spiritual one. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? retorted Pilate. With this, he went out again to the Jews gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. So Jesus affirms that his words are true. In fact, it was for this very reason he came into the world and that everyone on the side of truth will yield to him. Though Jesus refers to what is true in God's eyes, Pilate has got a very worldly view and seems to think that truth is really a personal choice. And I think that many people today have that view as well. It's as if truth depends on what you think, that truth is what you want it to be. Pilate says to Christ, what is truth? as if he'd given up caring about real truth a long time ago. I'm sure he'd been a politician long enough to reach the conclusion that truth was often just whatever was convenient. Whatever ideals he once had were gone. All he was hoping to do was to survive his commission. When Pilate went out to the Jews again, he told them, I find no basis for a charge against him. Other translations say that he could find no fault with Christ. And this is significant because we know that any sacrificial lamb had to be inspected again and again to make sure that it was perfect in every way. And Christ is proved to be faultless despite the charges against him. John does not emphasize it, but this is when Pilate realizes that Jesus is from Galilee and trying desperately to minimize his own involvement in the situation, Pilate sends Christ to Herod. And you can read about that in Luke chapter 23, verses 6 through 12. 
Jesus made no defense to Herod, and by the way, he wouldn't do any miracles for him either. And so Herod eventually got bored and sent Jesus back to Pilate, as if saying to the governor, well, he's your problem. Luke does tell us in Luke 23 verse 12, though, that from that day on, even though they had been enemies before, from that day on, Pilate and Herod became friends. Why? Because both of them understood the difficult nature of their common problem. Pilate knew that things could go very badly for him and he still didn't want to be responsible for what happened to Jesus. And so we're told in verse 39 that he had another idea. And again, he goes out to speak to the Jews, saying to them, But it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now, Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. At Passover, it was customary for the authorities to release a prisoner to the crowds as an act of goodwill. And so Pilate offers to release Jesus to them. However, in Luke's account, in Luke 23, we're told that as Pilate suggested that, the crowd, stirred up by the religious leaders, keep shouting about Christ, crucify him, crucify him. They demand that Barabbas be released instead, despite the fact that he was not only a troublemaker, but as Luke 23 verse 19 tells us, Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. It's important. He was accused partly of exactly what they were accusing Christ of for insurrection. This is important because here in this picture, we see a perfect um, illustration of salvation by grace. On the one hand, there is the king of glory, perfect with no fault of his own. On the other hand, you have this evil lawbreaker. Though he didn't deserve death, Christ will die so that the guilty one might go free. In truth, you and I are Barabbas. Perhaps we've not committed murder, but all of us have broken God's law. And James tells us in James 2 verse 10, that if you keep the whole law and yet stumble at just one point, you're guilty of breaking all of it. According to God's standards, each of us, like Barabbas, stand worthy of death. But Christ, the sinless one, has died in our place so that we might be released from the judgment against us. You know what's very interesting is the fact that in that language, bar meant son. And so the wonderful thing is that the name Barabbas actually means son of the father. Barabbas. Because Jesus, the innocent Lamb of God, died in his place, Barabbas was truly set free to become a son of the Father. We're not told about him again, though, in Scripture. One can only hope that he did come to faith and become a child of God as a result. But we don't know for sure, because after this, Barabbas disappears from the pages of history. But his story is clear. The guilty one went free because of the price paid by the innocent substitute.
Pilate is still trying to resolve the situation and he thinks, surely, if I have Jesus flogged, that will satisfy them. You see, flogging was a terrible thing. The victim was tied to a post and whipped 39 times, 13 strokes on the chest and the other 26 on their back. And this was no ordinary whip. Consisting of many different leather strips with metal or shards of bone attached to the ends, its purpose was to tear up the flesh, causing extreme blood loss that would bring death quickly if the victim survived the lashing to go on to the cross. This brought the fulfillment of the prophecy in Psalm 129 verse 3 that says, Plowmen have plowed my back and made their furrows long. For truly Christ's back looked like a plowed field when they had finished. Chapter 19. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they slapped him in the face. Initially, Jesus had been accused of sedition, of rebellion against the state of Rome. The Romans had been told that Christ had said that he was king of the Jews. So as a mockery, the Roman soldiers crowned him with thorns and wrapped him in a royal robe. Verse 4. Once more Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. No matter how many times Pilate tells the chief priests and temple officers that he can find no fault with Jesus, their minds were already made up. And then suddenly... The Jews changed the charge against Jesus from one of sedition to that of blasphemy. Look at verse 7. The Jewish leaders insisted, We have a law and according to that law he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus, but Jesus gave him no answer. It's plain that when the Jews said that Jesus had claimed to be the Son of God, Pilate felt even more concerned than ever before. The Romans were a very superstitious people. After all, they had their own myths about the false gods they worshipped, having sons that walked on the earth. And so Pilate immediately goes back inside and he asks Jesus, where do you come from? But Jesus gives him no answer. Again, Jesus is silent, fulfilling the prophecy of the Messiah in Isaiah 53 verse 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. John 19 verse 10. 
Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. Pilate knows that as governor, he held something that was known as the ius gladii in Latin. It was the right of the sword, which meant that in Rome's eyes, Pilate had the power of life and death. But no one could take life from Jesus, not even the Roman governor. Jesus gave up his life of his own accord. Notice how Jesus addresses Pilate's concerns here, though, assuring him that Caiaphas is really the one who is guilty of greater sin than the governor because he was the one who had delivered Jesus to Pilate in the first place. Pilate continually tried to release Jesus until they said the one thing that he feared the most. Verse 12. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. Friend of Caesar was a title of honour bestowed on governors. And so when they suggested to Pilate, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar, Pilate knows they have made the decision for him. His political career could not withstand another blunder, certainly not one like this. If he even appeared to choose another over Caesar, it would have cost Pilate his life. Verse 13. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. And that is unfortunately where we have to leave off for today. We'll pick it up there next time. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the rich truth that you have shown to our hearts today through your text. Lord, I pray that you would continue to protect us and lead us and bring us to this place next week that we might continue in this great story of grace and redemption. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources, visit her website at intheword.com.